Hey everyone, it's Jenna. This week we are bringing you a special collaborative episode with our colleagues in the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences here at Penn State. They produce a show called the Symbiotic Podcast, which is all about ways that scientists from across disciplines are collaborating. In the case of this conversation, that collaboration includes political science and the social sciences more broadly. We've been talking about doing a joint episode for a while, and as you'll hear, COVID-19 gave us plenty of things to talk about. Thank you to Cole Hans and the entire Huck Institute's team for making this happen. And if you enjoy this conversation, be sure to check out the Symbiotic podcast. And finally, don't forget that we're taking questions for our listener mailbag episode, which we'll be recording in a few weeks. You can send us your question at democracyworkspodcast.com slash question, and you'll also be entered for a chance to win a Democracy Works mug. Again, that's democracyworkspodcast.com slash question, or you can find the link in the show notes. Greetings, fellow Homo sapiens, and welcome to the Symbiotic Podcast. I'm your host, Cole Hans, and today I'm very pleased to have uh, three guests on our show as we launch into our new series of COVID-19 research briefs. We've got Taylor Scott on the line today. Taylor is Associate Director of the Research to Policy Collaboration at Penn State within the Edna Bennett Pierce Prevention Research Center. And we also have special guests from the Democracy Works podcast, which is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. We've got the director of the McCourtney Institute, Michael Berkman, who is a professor of political science at Penn State. And we have the host of the Democracy Works podcast, Jenna Spinelli, on the line. Welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for great to be here, Cole. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I just want to kick off uh, with Taylor and give Taylor a chance to tell us about a seed-funded project that the Huck Institutes, along with the Social Sciences Research Institute, got together and funded as part of a, a big, big effort at Penn State to fund coronavirus research. And this project is called the Rapid Translation of Research into Coronavirus Policy Response, which sounds like a really important topic right now. Taylor, could you just briefly tell us what this project is about. Sure. Well, the reason I'm really excited about the work that we do is because we lament as scientists the work that we produce takes so long to reach decision makers and make its way into actual use of research evidence. That's the area of uh, work that we're with, we're really focused on is how does research get used by decision makers and particularly by legislators. And so what we know from that is that it's not sufficient to just write up a report and allow it to sit on the dusty shelf, but using research evidence is a very interactive process. And so we've been doing this work for a few years now, and really we're hoping to leverage this opportunity to be adaptive and responsive to decision makers' needs around coronavirus research. We want to have a, um, a bridge between the research that's getting produced and um, the people who need it the most to guide decision making. And so the support from Penn State will help us to do some legislative needs assessments around their interests related to coronavirus research and particularly how it intersects with issues related to children and families, the social side of the pandemic. Thank you very much for describing that. So in a sense, you're almost acting like a, a matchmaker between politicians trying to make policy and researchers that have the good data to help them make that policy. Do I get that right? That's right. I like that description. 
right on. Well, it's certainly a very hot topic to talk about research and policy. At every level, it seems, this whole topic of, of research around coronavirus and policymaking couldn't be more contentious and just in our face, right? So with that, I, I want to turn things over to uh, Michael and Jenna to, to talk about the political side of, of this whole topic of, of research and policymaking that is so hot right now and, and in our faces. Yeah, so you know, Cole, you, you touched on um, several topics that we've covered on Democracy Works recently, from the protesters to uh, issues of, of federalism, you know, the kind of state-by-state state response that we've seen in, in deciding to shut down during the early part of the pandemic and to reopen uh, now as we enter into to May and moving on into the summer. That's something pretty unique to, to America's system of, of government, but Harkening back to, to you know some of what what Taylor was saying in this this notion of of expertise, um, something that we talk about also a lot on Democracy Works is why expertise is important in in a democracy. And Michael, do you mind telling us a little bit about the role that expertise plays in a democracy? I think one way of thinking about this is that there is always a tension between democracy and expertise in American politics, or maybe a, maybe a better way of thinking about it is that there's a tension between populism and expertise in American politics, where experts are often seen as the sort of elites that populists uh, arise against, that populists think that they, populist movements tend to think that they know the truth, that they know what's right, that they know what they need, and that elites are pointy-headed intellectuals. Uh, to borrow from uh, George Wallace's terms. And so there's constantly been this sort of tension within American politics. I think we're seeing it, a lot of it with the COVID. Uh, we're seeing it in the sort of protests, obviously, that you're talking about, which I think are really uh, important distillations of this. And I think the disbanding of the task force today, or at least the announcement that the task force will be winding down is quite important because I think it signals that the Trump administration is uh, turning its attention from the, uh, from the science and the battle against the coronavirus to reopening the government and a reliance on uh, business leaders and economists to figure out how to do that. That's right, and, and I've, I've been thinking about that as well. So in a sense, um, it comes down to values is, is what I see here is as a culture, as a nation or any nation or, or any subdivision you wanna pick, what are the values that, that hold the most power or how, how are those values stacked? You know, I think when you look around the states, you look at the national government and the different ways that this has been dealt with, I think you see some very different approaches. And, it, and there are some where I think political leaders have done a very good job of trying to communicate what they're learning from their experts, from their scientists, uh, from their public health professionals and are able to do this in a nonpartisan sort of way where they're not trying to turn it into a conflictual issue, but rather say, here's what I've been learning, here's what I think you need to know, here's what I think this means that we're going to need to do. On the other hand, and I think you're seeing this especially at the national level, you can turn this into a partisan conflict in and of itself, where the experts are on one side and the people are on the other. And that's where you're going to have a real clash and that's where you're going to really have problems. And, and part of that has involved what I think is an unrealistic kind of dichotomy between economics and public health. Because without, without taking care of the virus, there will be no economic activity. You could open up whatever you want, but 
people are not going to feel safe going out. And so you're not really going to make any kind of progress. I mean, most economists you listen to talk about the need to first take care of the virus, and then you can move into, into more of these, uh, in, into these sort of economic questions. That's right. And, but for, for people to be able to feel secure in that, they need to feel that they can feed their families and have a safe place to be, et cetera. I, I want to, um, bring things back to Taylor. I know that last week we, we talked Taylor uh, and I asked you about some success stories, you know, because I see what you're doing with the, the, the policy to, uh, the, excuse me, the research policy collaboration that you're a part of. Um, you've had some successes in the past in, in bringing data to uh, legislators that helped you, you know, fund more prevention of, of child abuse, et cetera. Could you speak to that a little bit and tell us it's like a, like a happy, a happy moment that, that where, where policymaking and research did come together? Sure. I also want to just piggyback on, I guess, where, where we've taken the narrative already is about this kind of um, elitism and how it becomes this tension between the people versus the elites. I, I do feel like in a lot of my work, I try to carry through this idea of outreach of the academic community, because I, I do think that what's exacerbating this dichotomy right now is a lack of trusting relationships between community partners, people who represent the people, and the people who are studying the people. So if we are kind of in our ivory tower separate from the people, how can they trust the ivory tower? And so um, I think that our academies are really starting to recognize the need for scholarly engagement. And so we're really part of that effort as well. And this is both a systemic effort, a systemic need within our institutions to reinforce those um, engagement efforts, as well as providing mechanisms for doing so. And that's what we are. We are a mechanism for scholarly engagement in the policy space particularly. In terms of successes, carrying that, that relational aspect through, we can look at something that we've done in the policy space to, to work with policymakers on the prevention science of child abuse. And that is that we know that there's a lot of promise in preventing child abuse before it occurs. And that has the potential to be really cost effective because if you don't prevent child abuse, you can expect a lot of downstream consequences from that trauma to occur for, for the victims and the families and the system as well, including the cost of foster care, as well as the cost of mental and behavioral challenges for the kids who may not do as well in school as a consequence of lifelong uh, consequence of trauma. So why don't we just prevent it in the first place? <laughs> but we need to be able to effectively communicate that science. And so what we did working with the Child Maltreatment Solutions Network is that we formed some relationships with particularly the leaders in Congress on child maltreatment initiatives. That includes caucus leaders and committee leaders, staff. Uh, for example, um, health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the Senate is one that is charged with the reauthorization of the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. So working in coordination with those legislative partners, we, we knew and anticipated that they were looking to reauthorize that big piece of child welfare legislation that does have a prevention component. 
and we organized a congressional briefing at the end of 2018, just before the new Congress started. It was in that lame duck period, and they were starting to put pen to paper on how they wanted to reauthorize that legislation. And so it was great timing for us, and we could only navigate that timing in partnership with the legislative offices. Well done. And that reminds me of something Jenna brought up to me yesterday that we really need to touch on in this conversation about the real-time aspect of what's going on with with COVID-19. Jenna, do you want to hit us with that question? Yeah, sure. I do have uh, one other um, follow-up, though, but before we get to that. um, So, Taylor, as as you were just describing, there's all this work that happens. It it seems like on a a bipartisan basis, and I'm reminded of an interview that we did on our show with a political scientist named Frances Lee, who's at Princeton, and one of the things she talked about was how in how the, the, the media and the public kind of perceives Congress. It's very much about the partisan confrontations and, and all of those sorts of things. And these more bipartisan efforts tend not to get the media spotlight. And, you know, one, because it's not as lucrative for the media's profit models, but also there's some incentive on behalf of the lawmakers themselves that you know, if they can amp up that they're fighting for their side, that's going to help rally voters for the next election. And so I'm wondering what, what your experience in, in this realm has been. I mean, are the, the people you work with, are these efforts getting attention or are they more behind the scenes or, or how do the folks you work with navigate this tension between their, their policy objectives and maybe their, their partisan allegiances that they feel like they have to project? Okay, so I think I think that you're hinting at something that I categorize as like this tension between inside and outside approaches, where um, this concept came from Ken Matten at UMBC. He's a, a, another community psychologist that I, I work with and um, bat around ideas. He published a book about how psychologists engage in policy process. And I love this dimension, this this characterization because there's a lot of different ways to go about policy engagement and they can be symbiotic or they can be synergistic uh, where on, on one side of the coin, you have people who can um, really sort of rally and say, this is not right. You need to be policymakers need to be doing something different. And then on the other side of the coin, there's people who work with policymakers on existing policy priorities and goals. I think that the the trust in in those relationships on the inside approach to sort of providing more technical assistance and consultation is something that you have to be very careful about because your allegiances on the outside approaches can potentially undermine your credibility as a, a trusted consultant. But in the grand scheme of things, you might expect those two efforts to those two types of efforts to really work in synchrony because on the outside of Congress, you have um, efforts to really mobilize public support, which is, for lack of a better word, a bit of a more coercive technique to convince policymakers to do something different that they're not doing already. Um, That's very important, especially whenever there's not already the demonstrated public will uh, that's policymakers real goal is to serve people, right? They're elected to serve and represent 
the beliefs of the people. And if the beliefs of the people aren't consistent with the science, then that's probably where you need to go to shape the agenda, the political agenda. Working within the political agenda, we can help to respond to the existing needs or interests and potentially do a bit of a subtler navigation of those um, interests, but it's um, much more, uh, it's much a le less political uh, behind the scenes, I would say. So I think what Taylor is describing about their work at the committee level is exactly where you would expect expertise to have the most influence and the most impact on policymaking, because here's a level that's sort of below public perception, it's, uh, it's lower visibility, and more importantly, you're talking about ongoing relationships that allow legislators to develop, and, and their staffs, to develop uh, some element of trust with the, with the uh, experts that they're talking to or the representatives or however this is, is being communicated. And then that can work its way into policy making through their discussions, through the committee hearings, as Taylor was talking about, and this all tends to take place at a level that I think is sort of below public, uh, public attention and below the sort of partisan conflicts that happen when things are raised up to say the leadership level or to the, to the party level. Now where I think we start to run into some problems and why I think the initiative that's being described today is so important is that in, in many ways committee work has been increasingly devalued within Congress. And I think that's some of what Francis Lee is getting at that you were referring to before. Parties in Congress are becoming more ideologically coherent and conflict within Congress has also become much more competitive uh, in, in terms of who's going to control both the House and the Senate. And this means that at a certain level, the, the, the conflict between parties is more intense than ever before because uh, it doesn't take much to switch the chambers from one party to the other. Uh, it also means that things tend to get elevated up to the leadership level. Uh, here's some other examples of this. For example, uh, members of Congress are hiring fewer staff Within, within Washington, they're putting more of it out in their districts. District staff take care of constituency issues, but they don't really take care of the hard work of policymaking. Uh, there are fewer committee hearings than there used to be. Uh, work is increasingly taken out of the hands of committees and put into these sort of omnibus bills, which are pulling together work, pulling together issues from a variety of committees and uh, into, uh, into the uh, leadership committees or other kinds of, uh, other kinds of uh, leadership uh, tools. You know, the committee system in Congress was developed in large part to develop expertise. And so the idea here was that you can let people work over a long period of time. This is why seniority was important. They get to know an area, they get to know the experts within that area. Uh, so the committee work is very important and, and efforts to sort of undermine committees, for example, term limits, undermine that element of committees because it means that you're taking people out just as they're really starting to learn what it is that they're talking about and when they're really starting to learn who the experts are in the area that they need to talk with. So I think the kind of thing Taylor describes is, you know, fighting against some important trends in Congress uh, as a way of getting, uh, getting uh, important scientific information into the hands of legislators. I think sure. you're right that the polarization of Congress is more challenging and problematic than um, most people have experienced in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want to add maybe a brief of fresh air, breath of fresh air that um, behind the scenes, things look a little bit more functional than what we see in the media. 
Um, even I can point to some examples where bipartisanship seems to be working fairly okay. For example, um, staff and ways and means of the, one of the most um, re reputable uh, committees in the House because they control entitlement funding and taxes. It's a longstanding committee. They say that their bipartisan process has been working pretty well because they they work well together. That's not the case in all committees, of course, and it may not be the case in all subcommittees, subtopic issues that are really, you know, where the fever pitch and polarization is occurring. But um, I think that on the outside of things, things look a lot more dramatic than what you see when you're behind the scenes. And so the other thing that's kind of complicating all of this, um, bringing it back around to COVID-19 is that the, the policy and the legislating essentially is happening at the same time. I think that that's what you were, were getting at, Cole. So, um, you know, how are, how are legislators navigating some of these challenges or maybe not? How is that playing out both from a, from a policy perspective and from a, a political one? Yeah, well, when I think when you're in a crisis sort of situation like this, policy-making power passes more to the executive than in, in the legislature. And so mostly what you're seeing going on within the legislature right now are these sort of economic responses to what's going on and not a whole lot about decision-making around when we should reopen, how we should be addressing this. That's all being dealt with within the, within the executive branch and, of course, the state governments drawing on already passed legislation that empowers, you know, the CDC and the NIH and these other agencies to take certain kinds of actions or to play certain sort, sorts of advisory roles. And I, and I think you're seeing real differences across the states and across the countries in how expertise is used to make these sort of decisions. You, know, you, look at, you look at countries like New Zealand and Australia, one led by a conservative government, one led by a liberal government, but in both cases, uh, you know, experts, uh, public health officials really took the lead in making decisions about what was going to be done. And they have similar sort of responses and effective responses as well, because everything was sort of moved below the ideological level and their expert, experts were allowed to have a large say. I think you saw this in Seattle, actually, in the United States. And but you can you, you can sort of see this conflict between between the public and the experts play themselves out in different kinds of states where states with more conservative populations more populous populations where there's much more resistance to expertise are under pressure to open much sooner and i think that's why they're opening sooner they're they're, they're responding to the pressure that they're getting from their constituents I, I definitely agree. There's a lot of impetus for the executive branch in the COVID crisis, but Congress has also been busier than ever. Like, it's unheard of to see this much legislative activity going on right now. I just pulled up my dashboard and it looks in, like... In very little time, too. Very little time. Yeah. In the last three months, they've introduced 322 bills related to COVID-19, where the fever pitch looked like it happened around March 22nd. Activity has sort of stabilized since then, but I remember just anecdotally looking at my dashboard one day and seeing at least 30 bills introduced on one day, and I was just astonished because usually yep. in this term of the legislative session, they're not introducing as many bills. They're looking to just sort of ride the wave of the stuff they already did in the first half of the term and, you know, get things passed so that they can look good for elections. Yeah, I had no doubt that COVID has... Uh completely realigned the agenda within Congress, you know, and they're working pretty feverishly, especially when you consider how rarely they're actually in session, 
these days, especially the House, uh, which has been in session less than the Senate has. And the Senate's in session mostly in order to do judicial nominees, not really to work on COVID-related issues. But there, there are a whole variety of issues that COVID raises that they're legislating on. But, but you know, the immediate decisions, do we close this border or not? Do we, uh, you know, are we making, are, are, the, are the guidelines from the CDC going to set this kind of requirement for opening up or this kind, well, suggestion, not requirement for opening up or this kind of suggestion. All that's coming out of the executive branch under pre-existing authorizations uh, passed, you know, at a, passed at other times. But I wanted to, to come back to something that uh, is really at the, the heart of democracy and I think also at the, the heart of a lot of this, this policy work we've been talking about, and that is, um, where people get their information or kind of the, the sources that they, they value for information. Um, there's, there's increasingly, I think, a, a divide where uh, people, you know, largely on the, the right tend to be more, more apt to, you know, conspiracy theories or sources of information that are not grounded in, in policy or in expertise or all these, these things we've been talking about. And so the, the very cynical question that's been going through the back of my mind through this whole discussion as we've been prepping is so that there's all this work being done but you know what is the impact if if the public doesn't believe it or some segment of the public doesn't believe it or doesn't buy it or is is prone to believe something that's not entirely based in evidence and I'm just wondering like how can these like is is the the best case scenario that these two things just continue to exist in separate worlds where the the people who are on board with policy and expertise are kind of on one side and then people that have have a different set of beliefs are on another or where do we where do we go from here you know i hear taylor describing two things uh if i'm not misrepresenting this taylor one is that you're focusing on the committee level and working with members and staff uh, in the policymaking process. And then there's also this need for scientists and academics to get their research out into the public in a way that they can understand it. And I know that's something that's discussed quite a bit within the social sciences these days and, and, and how to do that. You know, the, the issue on the second in particular is really this notion that there's almost a epistemological polarization going on in this country right now at the mass level, uh, where you know you have people divided along partisan, almost tribal lines, uh, where they're within their own media sources and in many cases media silos, and in one of them in particular, you know, conspiracy theories abound. Uh, there is a sort of populist distrust of expertise. And it is very difficult to get through, to get through that. Uh, I don't have a simple answer for, for how that would be done. And I think actually that what you're often seeing uh, from national politicians plays directly into this by just sort of confusing things. You know, I mean, we, we need, it, it, it's up to political leaders, I think, to communicate the science, the expertise, what needs to be done in ways that the public can understand. Uh, and part of what this means is to not contradict them when you're standing next to them, uh, to not confuse things by just throwing out a whole range of facts, some of which are true and some of which are just pulled out of thin air. It, it means not creating a sort of chaotic environment 
where you don't know what's true and what's, what's not. And, and I think that is what we're seeing more and more, uh, especially within the right, I think. And this is, this is very challenging when you get into an issue that deals with you know, such complex scientific information. Now, it's not inevitable that things go this way. I look at some states uh, led by Democratic governors and led by Republican governors, uh, where the governors have very high approval from the public and they're taking very strong action, you know, relatively speaking, not compared to what, what, what happened in Asia, but, but very strong measures within their states for social distancing and the like. Public supports them and understands what's going on. There's a sort of coherent message that's coming out. I think that what you said about contradicting um, decision makers is really important, especially in the work that I do is, you know, so relational focus, but also we're trying to draw on communication sciences as well. And one of the things that we have recognized is that it's bad practice to reiterate a mistruth. Instead, best practice is to just say the truth and stick to the truth. That is something that doesn't have to directly contradict a decision maker and say, you lie, ruining that relationship and, and putting, pitting yourself at odds politically with whoever backs that person because they're going to trust their political leader and that ideology. Instead, just saying, well, I, well the truth is this thing. You're following communication best science as well as not putting yourself in jeopardy of politicizing um, you, you against the politician. Yep. Um, but the other thing that I want to also recognize is that um, in order for scientists to have better relationships with communities, with people, with um, organizations, politicians, we also need to recognize that there are multiple forms of expertise that policymakers and decision makers rely on, including um, decision-making uh, relies on lived experiences of their constituents, as well as the folks who are policy experts. And admittedly, a lot of scientists don't have a lot of policy training. So how are we supposed to predict what the unintended consequences are of taking action on our narrow slice of expertise? And so I think it's helpful to build relationships when we recognize these multiple forms of expertise because it allows us to develop partnerships that would help to well balance out the, the narrow slice of um, scientific knowledge that we have and thinking about how that can actually be used and what the meaning behind that would be for people at different levels in our communities and at the local level, state level, different levels of governance. Uh, different types of organizations. Yeah, I, I, I think you need both the experts and the politicians working together. And I mean, there is something that a politician brings to this that a, you know, a, a scientist or, you know, a public health official does not necessarily bring to it. They an understanding of their constituents, an understanding of how to communicate with them, uh, an understanding of what will fly and what won't, uh, an understanding of how to lay the groundwork uh, for certain kinds of changes that may be coming for people's lives. I mean, so it's important that they be able to, to work together. Uh, what concerns me about the sort of epistemological polarization that I was mentioning is that it almost seems sometimes in this country like uh, people are seeing two entirely different realities. They're working from different sets of facts or understandings of what's happening in the world and, and, uh, 
and where they're getting their information from. And democracy needs some kind of a common basis in what's actually happening in the world in order to be able to, to come up with solutions to it. Thank you, Michael and Taylor. Um, we're going to be running out of time here pretty soon. So I'm, I'm going to try and reflect back some things that I just heard as we wrap this up. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation uh, to bring together two worlds of, of politics and, and research, as we're always trying to do on the podcast, is bring in different voices from different places. So I just want to uh, wrap up here by saying, you know, Taylor, I heard what you said. It's, it's best policy and communication to stick to just the facts, ma'am. And, and Michael, what you're saying is not everybody agrees on those facts. So we are, we are in the middle of this right now. And, and a, a big thing going on in those conversations is the voices, the voices of all those different people that need to be heard. And what do they believe? And where are they getting their information? And we really have to address these things. We really have to address them and unpack them and hear the voices and make the connections the way that Taylor's doing with her group is that, that connective, the collaborative, so that the voices can be heard so that we can have the best picture possible to make the best decisions possible and, and continue to evolve our processes so that um, those processes do serve everybody more and more and more. That's, that's at least my hope. That's what, you know, we're trying to contribute to that right here with this podcast by bringing different voices on to, to be heard and share ideas uh, with this idea that we, we can get better at it. We can evolve this and, and democracy is a, is a good way to do that. And we should preserve democracy so that these voices can be heard so that we don't fall into some sort of fascist situation uh, where, where people are just dominated uh, beyond belief. Um, we're trying to, you know, evolve above past that as well and find creative solutions where it's not a question of your life or your livelihood you know so so i want to thank all of you for being on the podcast today i think you're all doing great work that helps to evolve our culture and helps to preserve democracy and helps to make connections of people that maybe wouldn't get connected and that we're doing all this stuff in service to, to the evolution of of our society towards a healthier, happier, a more prosperous one. And it's certainly a really difficult uh, time for everybody right now. But I would say that um, doing this kind of work is, is that much more important. So I want to thank all of you for the work you're doing. I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. And um, to our listeners out there, uh, thanks for listening in. And uh, don't stop co-evolving. Thanks a lot. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.